0: Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Join us this Sunday at one of our four campuses. Call times are at 9 and 11 a.m. at our Somerville and Remount campuses, 10 a.m. at our North Charleston campus, and 11 a.m. at our Monks Corner campus. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit faithishere.org. Happy Father's Day. If you are a dad, father, just stand to your feet real quick. Stand up all over the place. Hey, dads, it's your day. Hey, we honor you today. It is your day. You can put your feet up even higher than normal. um it is uh it is an honor to be with you this morning uh it is uh father 's day it 's an emotional week and uh it's it 's a honor to share uh this pulpit and um just just uh, the joy of being a father as i as i look at that we um my emotions are pretty high some of you may not know this uh, i have Twin nine-year-old boy boys that are just amazing. I have another seven-year-old boy. And then uh seven weeks ago we had a baby girl. And so uh I know, I know what were we thinking? What were we what were we thinking? Uh we have a girl, I um there's a, a quote by a, a comedian, and uh he says, uh if, if you want to know what it's like having four kids, all, all four young kids, imagine yourself treading water in a pool for a long time, <laughs> and then somebody hands you a baby. <laughs> we are, uh, she is a joy, it is amazing right now, uh, it has been an amazing season in our lives, some transitions, my wife is amazing, and baby is amazing, God has blessed us. Just, I don't want to make you jealous, and I don't want to mess up anything, but for the past four nights, she slept nine hours, and she's only a night. It's the gift of the Lord. Happy Father's Day. If you have your Bibles, take them out and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Man, we have been in an amazing series. I I also want to encourage you, uh, for those of you who don't know, I I bring greetings from the North Campus. Uh, I I have the joy and pleasure of being one of our campus pastors in North Charleston. We're having a blast over there. And at the same time, I also want to tell you, if you're a guest, please come back. Pastor Larry will be back next week, and uh, please come back. Um, It'll be a little different this morning. And uh, he is on a much-needed vacation. That man works, and he works tirelessly for you. So... um, just keep him in, in your thoughts and prayers this week that God builds him up, refreshes him as he takes some Sabbath time with he and Jeannie. And so uh, it, it's good. But the thing was, he gave me Romans chapter 9, so I'm excited. Romans chapter 9. We've been in our series, Good News for All People. How many you been enjoying this study? It's been good. It has been deep. It has been rich. And uh, we come to this point in chapter 9, and we look at the framework that Paul has laid out. All the way from way back to the depravity of man, we looked at grace not by works and the beautiful exchange. We looked at the law that points us to Christ, that, that everyone struggles with this old man and dying to this old man, but also the challenge for us to live in the spirit. And the uh, last couple of weeks, we've looked at you being a child and an heir of God. Aren't you thankful that he's your daddy God? Anybody thankful for, for our ultimate father and who he is? That nothing can separate us. Isn't that exciting? That's what we looked at last week. And so as we approach this section, this section, Life Inverted, the next three chapters will be what most scholars believe is a theological pause in Paul's writing. Where he comes to the question of, what about Israel? He comes to this question of, why are there so many unbelieving Jews? They're God's chosen people. They're they're God's ones He's called from the very beginning, and yet they're not in relationship. They've broken covenant. Why are they not embracing this Messiah, Jesus, and who He is? And this will build this theological debate, which you will find over the next three chapters, the fairness of God and the sovereignty of God, and and looking at that. Um, as As I look at the word fairness... Uh, if you have kids, this is a topic of debate. Anybody have kids? Anybody ever hear the phrase, that's not fair? I think, I think that's our most common phrase in our house with three boys near the same age. That's, that's not fair. It's some kind of, I don't know if it's ingrained in them from the womb, the looking of fairness. And that's not fair. The next question I get probably the most is, that's not fair and why? Why? Anybody have some wires in their house? Why? 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 Because I said so. I'm finding now that I'm getting, like you're saying, those dad phrases. That's not fair. Life's not fair. <laughs> Anybody have dads? Dads with that? That's not fair. I'm sorry to tell you this. Life's not fair. Suck it up. Life's not fair. It's, just, it's not. Newsflash. Life's not fair. Keep. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. We ask these, these questions, that's not fair, and why? We, we set the, the dinner, we try to have family dinner at night, and we set the dinner table, and immediately when you do that, I believe the, um, the understanding of being born into sin, as the kids come down. And they survey the table, they're looking the one with the most macaroni, and it's like a quick, like, that one's mine, and then they jump, is this just my house? All right, this is just my house. They jump in, and, and then what do the others two say? That's not fair. He got more macaroni. More macaroni. See, here's the thing about that's not fair. That's not fair is looking at what applies to me, doesn't it? And what best suits me. And if it doesn't best suit me, then I cry out, so it will best suit me. And then if that doesn't happen, I start to question, why does it not best suit me? See that transition, that? that thing that's going on, that's not fair and wise. So that's where we're going to be this morning as we start this passage, the fairness of God and the wise. If you have your Bibles, again, Romans chapter 9, stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. I'm going to start with verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Here's where we get some openness of Paul. I have great sorrow and unseeking anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed or cut off from, for Christ's sakes, for my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. There's adoption and their sonship, their divine glory, their covenants. The, the, so he's talking all the blessings of his people, their receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. theirs are the patriarchs. And from them traced human ancestry of the Messiah. And it makes a transition. Who is God over all. Forever praised. Amen. Father, today I pray as we look at your word. God, even as we examine some whys. Even as we look, Lord, into our own community. And we're asking some questions why right now in our state. God, I pray that. Lord, you would open up our minds to hear this word. God that we would uh, understand your agenda your love and your mercy today in a whole new way. we love you Jesus in your name we pray amen you may be seated turn to your neighbor real quick tell them they look good this morning Paul is coming Paul is coming to the point where he is he's kind of focused on the home he's coming back to this this Jewish culture and his heart his heart is breaking. Anybody ever when you think maybe about your hometown, maybe even your your family, maybe maybe you think about high school sometimes. Some of you can't remember that, but go back there with me. You think about high school sometimes, you think about how you grew up, you think about maybe your testimony and the things you came from, and all of a sudden you kinda get this feeling that your heart breaks. Your heart breaks because they're not in right relationship with covenant God as you are, and you're, you start to have these conversations and close family members, and maybe even really harsh heartbreak with a prodigal son or daughter, and, and your heart is moved. And, and as you look at this home area where Paul is talking about, he's look at his people, what he's trained in, the culture he grew up in, his heart is broken. His heart is broken. This is an unusual Sunday. Because it's, it's Father's Day, but as Pastor Chris talked about, it's, it's also a day of somewhat healing for our city. Many of us, we've been impacted, some of you, by direct ties of the victims the, of the horrendous crime that went on. And perhaps there's maybe not even a relationship that we had physically with them, but we feel kind of the spiritual connection to other Christians, especially in our city, those who lost I thought long and hard about today and kind of tossed and turned ever since Wednesday and the things going on, and many people have asked this question, this basic question that Paul is somewhat proposing this morning, why? Why? All kinds of answers have been given, some not so strong, others strong, everything from racism to gun violence to mental illness to poor upbringing and some, myself included, try to draw attention, I I think, to the deep spiritual need and the depravity of man that's going on. And that there's real evil in the world and there's a real devil who works to destroy God and his people and he's out there. But still, on some point, it, it doesn't answer the question why. What about fairness, God? Is God fair? Is it fair for... God to allow a 21-year-old to sit through a service at a church and then proceed to murder people. Is it, is it fair? And as I, as I looked at, tried to look at this from a perspective of a pastor, this happened in a place that we hold sacred. And, and God let down His protection and He called nine people home. And was that fair? And I, I want to challenge you as, as you look into God's sovereignty, as you look into who He is, that there are many characteristics about God which are difficult to reconcile, I believe, in our human mentality and our, and our, our end. And maybe the most difficult question surrounds this idea of fairness. I'm sure if you've ever experienced personal close tragedy in your life, you've had these Questions that are rolling through your mind. If this was so much like this, then why? If there's so much blessing here and potential here, then why? If this happened here, then why? 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 In this chapter, Paul's heart is literally breaking for his city so much that he wished to take the place. He said, Punish me. Punish me. And the question arises as he as he kind of goes through this theological process is God's fair. Is God fair? There's this war, this struggle that comes right out, especially in the first five verses. You see, for Paul, he had accepted and was thankful for his calling. His calling was to the Gentile nation. And he rejoiced in God's grace for them and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was happening and the lives that were being transformed. But now, The hard part is his own nation, the Jewish nation, had for the most part failed to accept the salvation he was proclaiming. Even though it was presented to them at first. And there's this struggle. And I think to add to his heartbreak, to add to the fact that he himself was once opposed to the gospel. How many of you remember Paul's testimony when he was Saul, when he was persecuting Christians, when he was trying to stamp out Christianity and those of the way, and he was murderer, and he... He was on his way to Damascus, and he had an encounter with God, and the scales fell off of his eyes, and he was completely changed and transformed. And I think at some point, Paul sees his nation in the same area that he once was. And now his heart breaks even more. He's desiring, man, I just wish the scales would fall off your eyes. You see, sometimes when our heart and our mission isn't right with God, how many of you have ever been there? Where your heart and your mission... How many have a testimony and a story? Anybody? Where your, heart, where your heart isn't right with God. Watch this. God will use the very thing that we bucked and opposed to turn it around and break our hearts so we see the people that were once like us. Amen. Amen. You see, the reformed drug addict has compassion for the addict. Because he's seen the light and it's been turned on. He understands Jesus and who he was. The set-free alcoholic is broken at the side of those who struggle with the addiction of alcohol because because the light's been turned on and he's been set free and he understands the bondage that was once there. I tell you what, I am am thankful for a church home of faith assembly where all races are accepted, where we feel free to love and care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But you know, when stuff like this in our, hang on, when stuff like this in our community happens, our heart breaks because we understand what the body of Christ is supposed to be. So you see that, that sympathy, that stuff, it happens because the light's been turned on. You see, when the light of Jesus comes through you and he exposes your darkness, you now sympathize with those in darkness. Now on a side note, just a little bonus. If you find yourself having trouble with sympathy for those in darkness, you need to wake up And you need to understand that you're not better than you once were. And sometimes we've been saved for years and we forget the journey that God's taken us through and that we've been on. That wasn't even in my notes. Now there's another note that's going on. And it's going on with inside the church. And this is where it gets scary. You see... The first believers of the church in Rome, they were Jewish. They were, they were those who were filled with the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, and they went back and started these somewhat house churches back in Rome. So the first believers that came to the knowledge of Christ being the Messiah that were filled with the Holy Spirit were actually Jewish believers. But by the time that Paul is writing this letter, they were becoming outnumbered by a different race, the Gentiles. And so there's this struggle going on within the church. So not only does heartbreak without the church, there's a struggle going on within the church with the Gentiles. They were rescued from a pagan lifestyle and they lived in grace. Now maybe too much grace and there were some issues that Paul was addressing. And then there's the struggle with the Jews who felt like they were chosen, that they were elected and the gospel was excluded only for them with all their laws, all their customs, and they were the favorite race. So, not only is there this heartbreaking for the world, the the Israel world, but there's a heartbreaking for the church that is happening that Paul is writing to. And so, the major question again, or the call to the question, was that that the gospel that Paul preached was to no advance with this race. And starting for the next six verses in, in the next three chapters, Paul will wrestle with this problem God's choice of sovereignty. Is it fair for God to choose Israelites? Is it, is, it, is it unfair? Why? Why? What's going on here? Is it fair for him to use a rebellious nation who now resists the gospel of grace? Is that, is that fair? Now let me just tell you, somehow I was blessed with this chapter. This chapter is one of the most difficult, controversial chapters in the New Testament. There's been differences on how to understand Romans chapter 9 that have parted friendships, split churches, divided Christians into different denominational groups. This is a, this is a weighty chapter. But as we look at, at this, I want you to have an open mind of God's plan and who He is. So just turn to your neighbor and say, be open-minded. That was weak. Do it again. <laughs> be open-minded. Just tell him. All right, we'll just go on because you guys aren't. Maybe it was just closed and you didn't even hear that. As we look at the next, the 6 through 13, you'll see him start this debate, and he points out some extremes that God chooses, and that God has always used individuals and nations in special ways to fulfill his strategy. He'll say, just like in the Old Testament, that God chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. Now, a person could look, here's the problem, could look at God's strategy and conclude that God's not fair, that he's controlling everything. And the choice of Abraham out of all nations, the choice of Isaac, the choice of Jacob, all of these choices of Israel over all the other ancient na- nations. How can God do this? How is He playing? Is He playing favorites? Is He, is he fair in working out His plans? So today, we're, we're going to dive into this. And, and I kind of want to just sum, summarize this chapter three ways that you can trust God to be fair that He's working out His plan. This is going to be good. Three ways, and if you have your bulletins, you can take those out with us. Three ways that you can trust that God is fair, that he's working out his plans. Number 1 is God's mercy. God's mercy. Look at Romans chapter 9 and we'll start with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion" On whom I will have compassion. Now it does not, therefore, depend on a human desire or effort, but on mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Question that he's proposing here Does God play favorites? To really understand this, I think we have to go back even further, way back to the Old Testament, and take a look at Israel, take a look at Abraham, what they were originally called to do. See, many view the election of Israel as an exclusion of all other nations. I want you to get this. It's going to get a little deep, but I think you can handle it. Can you handle it? Are you hungry this morning? You guys good? Not for donuts, for this. you hungry? You good? <laughs> I'm, I'm with North Campus, and North Campus is with me, so I need you to smile and need you to be with me. You guys good? Let your face know. You guys good? Bring it. OK. Many view this election as an exclusion of all other nation, but the real meaning was God's redemption. Scripture gives a light to a different thought. You see, Israel was called to be God's chosen people. They were a holy nation. They were set apart. But the reality, they were holy and set apart to make peace with all other nations, to bless them through Abraham's seed. And in return, the world could come into right relationship with God. That was the original intent. God chose the Israelites to use them to redeem the fallen earth back to covenant relationship and peace with him. Why he chose Israel. Now, obviously, Israel, throughout the Old Testament, you will see this, they messed it up in their flesh. They didn't completely grasp the understanding, their mission, and their purpose, and they thought that their election, they saw it, and they began to use the system that God had put in place and they corrupted it. That instead of being the living bridge, so to speak, they became isolated and became prideful, and became prided themselves in their own laws and way of doing things. See, Jesus, even when He begins His earthly ministry with the Sermon on the Mount, one of His first statements is, Blessed are the peacemakers. He brings them back to the original purpose, back to the original tent. He recognized that somewhere along the lines, we've gotten off track from the original tent and what we were supposed to do and why we were set apart. And for the next three years of Christ's life, all his teachings are pointing to God's chosen people being the living bridge to redemption. Now Paul, with a broken heart for his prejudiced people, he rejects the conclusion. He rejects that, the idea that God is unfair by quoting from the Old Testament from Exodus. That God isn't unjust. The little background. At first glance, it's kind of unclear exactly how this quotation from Exodus. But if we read the whole verse in 33 verse 19. You see, Moses is asking to see the glory of God. And, and he's asking, and the Lord responds in this. He said, the Lord said, I will cause my goodness. God's character is good. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name. So the whole purpose of this was to proclaim the name and to see his goodness in the Lord and in your presence. And then he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion now here's the big thing when people get into this big debate of Romans chapter 9 i want you to notice something notice that this text doesn't say i will have mercy on whom i will have mercy and i will show cruelty on whom i will have cruelty he doesn't say i'm i'm fair with some and i'm unruly with others The emphasis here is on God's mercy and compassion. That that view in Exodus was the closest we've got to the character of God and who He is. And He said, I'm allowing my goodness, my compassion, my mercy to pass before you. And it's so that other people will know the name of the Lord. So the emphasis is God's mercy and compassion. The character qualities that are the very heart of God and at His nature. Establish mercy. This is good news because because it means that God is working out a plan of redemption from human history and it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on me. And Paul gives this example from Exodus to illustrate this point. He says, look, there's this Egyptian guy, Pharaoh. He refused to release the people of Israel until God did several miracles. And at this point, uh, here's the point that the Egyptian Pharaoh rejected God. So the point is not necessarily, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did it, there's, there's certain passages, about half of them are, are God hardened Pharaoh's heart, about the other half, Pharaoh's making his own decisions. And so a lot of people take this again, and they theologically try to flip it into God does everything, and we're just puppets. We have a choice. Pharaoh hated the people of Israel. He was the taskmaster, he was the slave driver, he hated them. And he actually raised, even in the hatred, even in all that demise, he raised Pharaoh's up and God's purpose was still fulfilled. And that's the point. Even in his hatred and rebellion, Pharaoh served as a witness to God's greatness and glory. I know it's heavy. Hang on with me. When human beings react against God, here's the thing. They think they're acting on their own. They think they can short circuit his plans. But how many of you know we serve an all powerful God? That God is actually using the very resistance to accomplish his purpose. God used Pharaoh's resistance to display his power and make his character known. Oh, yeah. So here's the key here's the key. We must know for Israel that the hardening of the heart isn't permanent or beyond redemption. You'll see that come out in chapter 11. Paul's point here seems to be that even God's enemies can serve purpose in his plan. I watched Friday afternoon the victims of the families and the videos of how they forgave. I watched them extend invitations. I watched them plea, and they plead for this murderer to accept the mercy and grace of God. The response to these actions, it shook me. It was incredible. And here's the thing. The world doesn't understand mercy. The world doesn't understand grace and the gift of God. The world doesn't understand how these families, within days of losing their loved ones, could forgive a killer and plead with them to accept God's mercy. They don't understand. Why? Because he doesn't deserve mercy, does he? He doesn't. It's not fair that he's able to live while many die, right? It's not It's not fair. Here's the thing, I don't deserve mercy. None of us deserve mercy. If He extends mercy to us, it's only the extent that He extends mercy to others regardless of where they are, who they are, or where they've gone. Are you thankful for God's mercy this morning? It's an example of who He is. It's what His intentions are. And here's the thing, I can trust in God's fairness. I can trust in His fairness because His intentions are mercy. Question that arises for me, why is, why, why is he merciful to us? I like to consider the prodigal son, would you consider the father merciful? What was it? It's because of relationship. You see, the relationship, the communion, the covenant, the action, the love, it, it always trumps the brother, he was, he was dead, he was lost, and, and now he's found. You see, I was dead because of Adam's sin. I've, I'm, we talked about that in Romans already. But the mercy that God shows towards me, his desire is to get me and embrace. His desire is to restore love. His desire the whole entire time is a covenant relationship with his people. His purpose is always mercy. I can trust in his intention. I can trust in his compassion. It's not con- cruelty. It's not vindictive. And as we struggle with God's fairness, I want to challenge you that He will work out His plan, that His plan will happen, and you need to remind yourself that His intention is always mercy. His intention is always mercy. Turn to somebody and say, that's good. About 30% of you believe that. Let's move to point two. You'll get this next one. Number two. Another reason why we can trust in God's fairness is because of His authority. I have found... Very quickly, especially being married, uh, there are certain jobs that I am not made for. I'm uh, there's, I'm not suited for. For for instance, I would not make a good surgeon, doctor, any, anything, anything with blood. I don't like the sight of blood. I, I think that's maybe the first reason why I wouldn't be a good surgeon or a doctor or anything. I, I think the other thing is I tend to too easily empathize with someone else's pain. And by empathize, I probably mean I'm a sympathy puker. <laughs> okay, if someone starts throwing up, I'm throwing up. But don't do that. Don't don't make that noise. Like it's it. it is that anybody in here like that? I'm just. You wouldn't be good when people are throwing up. It's just not, it's not good. In crisis, in the moment when there's puking and things, I wouldn't be good at making decisions. It's just not, not good for me. The other thing is I don't even have training. In, I couldn't be a doctor. I, I don't have training. I don't understand how all that stuff works. And here's the point. However much I love my wife, I must entrust her into the care of a qualified surgeon if she ever needs surgery. I can't do the job, right? If the job of supreme judge of the universe ever opens, did you know that there's necessary job requirements for that? You must be omnipotent, all-powerful. You must be omniscient, all-knowing. You must be omnipresent everywhere at once. You must be immutable, unchanging. You must be eternal, above and beyond the bounds of time. You must be self-existent, needing nothing. You must be holy, the definition of good to the highest quality. You must be just, absolutely right in every and all decision. Paul is starting to get to the point of, even the very idea of questioning God. So he's drilling down here the idea that you would question God. He's asking why? Why would you even have the presumption of fairness and unfairness? Why do you think you have right to question God? Look at verse 19 in Romans chapter 9. One of you will say to me then, why does God still blame us for who was able to resist his will? But who are you? A human being talking back to God. I like that. Who are you? A human being talking back to God. Sometimes I want to tell that to my boys. Who are you? Talking back to your dad. It doesn't seem to have the same effect in their lives. Who are you talking back to God? So what what is formed, say to the one who formed it. Why did you make me like this? Does the potter have right to make out of the same lump of clay... Some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. You see, when it comes down to it, the word authority, I think most of us in here, if we're really honest, we have trouble with authority. Why? Because we're not fair and we ask why. We have trouble with authority because a lot of times in authority, it doesn't always put my best interest in place. So I have trouble with authority. I buck the system. I, I, I plea my case. I have trouble with authority. See, we live in a day when authority figures in general get little respect at all. Oftentimes, they may not deserve it. But it, it's hard for the world to grasp the idea that there could be somewhere in the universe that has absolute authority, absolute power. So what do we do? We question it. And to illustrate this, this kind of inappropriate of talking back to God, he quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah, verse 18. And he's talking, there's a picture and, and the picture is of a potter's house, and, and the potter, it says, I, I see this guy working on the wheel, and he's shaping from the clay, it was marred in his hands, so the potter, he changed it and formed it into another pot, and there's a line in there, seeming, they formed it, to seemed what's best to him, it's forming the pots. And then the word of the Lord came and said, can I do with Israel what the potter does, shaping you? forming you if if that pot's not working we're going to push it and make something new and it says like like clay in the hands of the potter so are you in my hands Israel you see the imagery here is that God is the master potter who is shaping and molding a piece of pottery and you get the picture on the wheel and he's using his his skills to smooth the edges and the pot to exactly what the potter wants it to be you see, just as the potter has freedom to shape and mold his artistic craftsmanship into various kinds of pots, God has the same right over us, the human race. So you get the picture. The potter has the right to craft people and nations out of one lump of clay and appoint these people into nations of various roles, working, what? His strategy and his plan. Now, some people hear the theological debate, some people here have drawn the wrong conclusion. Notice Paul says he is not talking about the potter making pots for the purpose of destroying them. There'll be a debate in a couple verses of of wrath. And some people, the thought was that the Gentiles were the nation of wrath. That's who he was going to destroy. First of all, when a potter creates, he's going to create a vessel. He's going to create a good vessel. But it says the clay was marred, right? The, The clay was marred. We're the representation of the clay. Now whose fault is that? The clay was faulty. It was imperfect. It, it kind of sounds a lot like me. I'm faulty. I'm imperfect. I'm, I'm born into sin. It kind of sounds a lot like Israel that continued to make these mistakes in the cycle of sin. So the potter takes the imperfect clay. Now here's the catch. Instead of discarding it, instead of discarding it, he refashions it into another vessel for his purpose and use. Redemption. Authority. Power. Power. See, likewise, the the Lord does not create certain individuals for destruction. However, some can be marred by their own choice. And instead of just removing them from the earth, the Lord will endure evil, but his intention is always mercy. He may even put them in great positions like Pharaoh, where he can manifest his power. But here's the catch because he is the maker, the potter can do whatever he wants to do. See, God is our creator. He's the one who shapes us and molds us and every human being into his image. And he is the master potter that shapes and molds us on the wheel. He smooths out our imperfections. He transforms us into the vessels of honor that we're supposed to and intended to be. I mean, you know, that's good news this morning. That's good news this morning. Here's the good news for me is that I can let go of my control. I've been dealing with this and God's been walking me through something in the past six months. Kind of like Jason, if you'd let me control things, things would be a lot better. And a lot of times we try to be the potter. We try to be the craftsman. We, hey, I want to be this kind of vessel. I want to be that kind of vessel. And we jump seasons and we compare. If only I was like this. If only I was like that. If only I had this kind of money and that kind of position. And we want to be the potter in our own life. And we want to make our own destiny because that's what we're taught into the world. How many of you know that's not God's plan? Amen. That you're a living bridge and an agent of redemption. And that's your purpose. That was extra. It's good news this morning. You can let go of control. The other good news is I can let go of my questioning. My life's in your hands, Lord. Yes. My life's in your hands, and I'm okay with that. Because that's the best possible way, place to be, right? That's the most abundant life you have. And as you try to hold on to your $10 Chick-fil-A money, it's, he's ready to give you 20 As I try to do it my own way, it doesn't work out. God's authority. I'm thankful that he has all authority. Very quickly, number three. God's heart of redemption. Oh, let's turn to your neighbor and say this is where it gets good. I mean the whole thing's good, but this is where it gets real good. Y'all don't believe me. You guys good? Hey, stand to your feet real quick. Give somebody a high five and say, God's a God of redemption. Come on, get up. The blood flowing. Some of you need that to happen in your life. God's a God of redemption. Tell him. God's a God of redemption. All right, I was losing some of you. How to it get you moving? <laughs> Somebody tell me, Pastor Jason, I'm old. I can't sit that long. So I'm, now you're ready to sit again. you good. God's heart of redemption. Look at verse 24. Even us whom he also called, not only from Jews, but also Gentiles. Oh, I love this. And he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. I'm thankful for that. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Now, the prophecy of Hosea, the early church in general used this kind of as a platform for the Gentile nation. We will see this echoed in 1 Peter chapter 2. But for, for Hosea himself, he learned to see this picture. This was a picture of actually what he was going through in his home. And his home actually became the picture of the relationship with God of Israel. When he married Gomer, his wife, that's a fun name. When he married Gomer, his wife, she gave birth to him a son. And he acknowledged this child as his, and he named him Jezreel, which is the God who sows. But her second and third child, Hosea was convinced, you see, Gomer had a a, a problem where she was prostituting herself. And in her second and third child, Hosea was convinced that they were not his. And the names he gave them expressed this fear, this disillusionment, this worry. He named one child, Lo-Rahuman, which means no natural affection for. Basically means he names his child, I don't love you. That's pretty rough. The next child is Lo-Amin, which means no kin of mine. That means you don't even belong in my house you're no kin of mine now these names were were pictures of god's attitude to his people of israel so god is frustrated with the nation of israel saying you've gone out you've you've everything i've created holy about you you're now wanting to be like the other nations you're sinning you're defaning. it's a picture of god they've broken their covenant and loyalty to him But because of the grace of God, and because the potter doesn't throw him out, how many are thankful? And because the potter longs for a relationship, he says a day when those at the present time are not his people, there will be a day where they'll once more be mine. And those who at present have no claim or kin or inheritance will be once more a subject to my compassion, my love and mercy and my sonship. There's an amazing twofold purpose that a lot of people don't catch here, that Paul takes these promises, and there's twofold. First of all, he refers to the situation with the history of Israel. He talks to Israel. He took out the principle of God's heart and his mission of redemption. And he says, "Listen, listen, Jews, I'm, I'm, I'm desiring for you to come back into right relationship. I want you back into covenant. There's going to be the day where Hosea is fulfilled, that the living bridge, it will happen, and it will happen in your life. I desire this relationship." But here's the good news. He also has this for a Gentile revival, who are actually, who are literally no kin, who actually have been told all their life that God has no affection for them, who actually have been told all their life that God wants to pour wrath out on them. He says, now you're adopted. Now you're mine. Now you're my children. Now I want you apart. You see, God's heart, despite our sin, despite our choices, his plan has always been the redeeming covenant of love and relationship. Is lost in the garden. His plan is for everyone. And you may look at your situation, you may think, you know what, God's not fair right now. But I want to echo the echo from chapter 8 is that we serve a God who is working all things together for the good. He's the master potter, he's molding and shaping, and his desire is to redeem love and relationship back to his people. (laughs) You see, Paul's ministry, a great number of Gentiles, they had never been a people they had never had any claim to covenant. They said the Holy Spirit's not for you. The outpouring of the Lord is not for you. Salvation is not for you. You got to do all these laws. But see, although they had never had a part of that, mercy was coming to them. Grace was outflowing over their lives. The message of Christ was going through them. The Gentile mission lands, people were being saved. The lands where God was unrepresented. And now many were, were coming into faith. And believers were acknowledged now as children of the living God. I will call them my people. I will call them my people. They will be called children of the living God. That's God's heart. In the middle of all this theology, in the middle of all this stuff, his heart is he's a redeeming God, calling his people back into relationship with him. As we conclude this morning, the good news is we can trust God to be fair. We can trust God to be fair in the way He works out His plan because God's intentions are mercy. Because God has all authority. Because God's heart is redemption. That doesn't mean I'm going to understand every little nuance in how He's working out His plan or I can ever see the big picture, but I want you to know God's plan always makes sense. And I want to I ask you two things. This morning as we close talked at the very beginning and where we're at i believe our congregation is feeling this does your heart break does your heart break for your city does your heart break for your family does your heart break from the situation do you see that the used tos that were in your life when you see them does that stir something inside of you the missional heart of god the redemption of god and what he wants for them see, I believe sometimes as church people, man, we can get so used to church and the goodness and the blessings that we forget our used to. I'm not saying you live and you're used to, but you remember you're used to because that used to is your story. And the way we overcome as a church is the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony and our story. And there's a God who wants to use you in His plan of redemption. That's the God we serve. And so, as you may have squandered your youth and you have sowed your wild oats and all that things that you wish you wouldn't have done, and all the the stuff that you may even be reaping some stuff, all that junk, there's a God who wants to use it as a part of his story of redemption. And you see that single mom, and your heart breaks. And you see that person addicted to a substance, and your heart breaks. And you see the pornography and the detriment on that family and your heart breaks. And instead of the condemning spirit, you point out the love and the mercy and the grace of God and who He is. You see, we're the living bridge bringing redemption. Does your heart break? The other thing I want to address, do you feel like things are unfair this morning? And this is harsh, but maybe you feel like you're Loru Haman. Maybe you feel like there's no natural affection. There's no love. You're you're struggling. Maybe you feel like there's no kin. And as last week we talked about a Abba father and a daddy God. And a couple of weeks ago we went into the adoption and the sonship and we talked about the groaning and we talked about him working all things together for the good. You're in a place of struggle right now. When stuff happens, you find yourself comparing people looking at somebody else's season and wanting to be there. You find yourself looking at through social media and scrolling and the contentment completely leaves your life as you look at other people's marriages, other people's finances, other people's stuff. And you're wanting to say, that's not fair. What well, was me if only, if all this stuff. And we, we live in a state of comparison, wanting what's best for us. I just want to encourage you this morning, That the greatest in God's kingdom is the servant. That God's kingdom is upside down from our world's mindset. That again, he has a purpose and a vision for your life. That again, you can trust that although somebody may call you no kin of mine, that there's an Abadadi God who is madly in love with you and he's pursuing you with reckless abandonment. And he brought you here this morning to tell you that his arms are open wide. That he loves you. It's a mindset to say, i gotta, I got to die to the not fair attitude, to the pity party, and i got to walk in the grace and love that he gives me every day. You see, church, because his mercies are new every morning, because he, his mercies are new every morning, that means every morning I start new. That means every morning I get to feel his passion and his presence flowing in and out of my life. And as I walk in that, bellies, out of my bellies shall so flow rivers of living water, and the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives inside of me. See, we serve a church that is powerless. And if we could wake up and understand that the power of God lives inside of us, these little attitudes and these little cliques and these little things and this little, this little division, it, it, it falls. Because in the light of His glory and grace, all that stuff is strangely dumb. I don't know if you guys want preaching. Oh, man, I could keep going. God's plan, God's plan is Redemption. God's plan is redemption. From the very beginning, His plan is redemption. I think of Israel's issue of unbelief, this case study in Romans chapter twenty-eight, this push in Romans nine. He's together working all things together for the good, according to His plan. This this planning of God it leads me to say I can trust Him and the middle of my circumstance, that He is good. I can trust Him in the middle of my pain and my heartache that He's good. I can trust Him in the middle of ongoing failures and struggles in my life. And the very thing often that I beg to take God to take away from me is the very thing that He wants to use for His glory. It's the way He works. And I can trust the potter who fashions, who finishes his work in my life, to use me as a vessel of honor. Can I just take three more minutes? I shared this story a year ago last time I was with you. Many of you know our family story, our testimony. 2008, our lives were, gra- were greatly shaken. I don't know, this time of year has been crazy as I, we approached Mother's Day, a new baby, and this time in our life, and some things are they are just there. If I'm not careful, these questions can arise in my life. What if not fair? All these things can continue to surface. We walked through the death of my mom. God took me to the story of of Joseph. I tell you what, I find great comfort in his story. Because you see, this guy grew up with a dream and a vision of greatness. He, He had this plan and directly from the Lord, and it was not fair because his brothers didn't like it. It was not fair because his brothers threw him in a pit. It was not fair because he was sold into slavery. It was not fair because he was placed in a house where through integrity he succeeded, but it was still taken away from him. It was not fair that he was falsely accused of rape. It was not fair that he was thrown in a prison. And in the prison, he was faithful and used integrity, but he was forgotten. It wasn't fair that he was forgotten. It wasn't fair. How many know God works all things together? And a young man who continued to stand on the word of God with integrity wherever he went, whose trust and faith was always in the Lord, no matter what the world, brothers, family threw at him, rose to greatness. And the dream was fulfilled. And the story says there's great famine, but God had a plan. The story says there's great famine, but God had a plan. Some of you may be in famine. God has a plan. The story says there's great famine, but God had a plan. He rose this young man up to where he was second in command. Top. Nothing happened that didn't go through him. The boy that was, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, put in a house as a slave, falsely accused of rape, in the prison, nasty, left alone for three to four years, second in command. And these brothers approach him because there's famine. I mean, in the middle of famine, you're going to be approached. People are going to wonder where you stand. In the middle of famine, the brothers approach him and say, look, hey, We need food. They don't recognize them. Finally, it's apparent to them that this is Joseph. And they're fearing for their lives and they're trembling on their knees. You're going to kill us. I know. I know. How could you do such a thing? We're so sorry. And he makes this statement in Genesis chapter 50. What you intended to harm. God used it to his plan. But it doesn't stop there. For the saving of many lives. I love that line because that line speaks of God's original plan, redemption. See, God wants to use your prison, your pit, your false accusations, your crazy family. He wants to use it all for the working. Some you laughed. You got crazy family. He wants to use it all for the working of his good. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, this morning I thank you. God, I got to thank you that your plan is redemption. I thank you. Sometimes in this world, Lord, we go through hardships. In fact, you know it was even promised in your word that we would face trials and tests. Father, I pray as that scripture is fulfilled, Lord, we would consider it joy. Lord, you teach us how to have joy again. Lord, you restore to us the joy of our salvation. Lord, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the pit, in the middle of the broken relationships, in the middle of words like divorce, in the middle of prodigal sons and daughters who are far away from you, God, you would return to us the joy of our salvation. And God, in that, we would release our control. We would give it back to you because you are the author and perfecter. Because God, you know the beginning and the end. And so, Father, this morning, we just corporally acknowledge that we trust you, the author. Lord, we've been trying to control so long. Father, I pray for a release this morning that we would let go. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.